Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Public relations, social media management, media strategy, and new business development have all played a pivotal role in Sarah Thompson's career. Born and raised in Dorchester, Ontario, Sarah relocated to Toronto after graduating from university and college. The early part of Sarah's career was heavily concentrated in public relations. This included roles at National Public Relations, Accenture, and Mansfield Communications, to name a few. Additional responsibilities in social media and strategy pushed Sarah deeper into the media world. And it's these duties that led her to opportunities with Chorus Entertainment, Theo, Cassette, and Mindshare. Sarah Thompson, president of Densu Media Canada, stops by to chat about her career in PR and media, the importance of blending her personal and professional identities on LinkedIn, and why we all need to be champions of local news. Dentsu Media Canada is one of the largest media networks in Canada. I think we're number four if you look at RECMA. My role is overseeing three tremendous agencies, our talent, our operations, our clients, our business, our plans, our partners, everything. And it's really about empowering our amazing leaders to lead and empowering our staff. And if I would say anything right now where my sights are set is to be the number three media network in Canada by the close of 2023. Sarah, thanks so much for stopping by. I'm really looking forward to our chat today. But let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Dorchester, Ontario. Uh, It's a small little town outside of London, Ontario, that if you're driving down the 401 heading through London, maybe you're on your way to Windsor, you would hit Dorchester, Ontario. It has a great truck stop. Um, I grew up there for all of my life. Uh, My parents had three kids and we moved to a house on Sherwood Crescent in Dorchester, Ontario when I was around three from a smaller house. We ran out of room. Um, So it's it's where my heart still sits, where I visit. Um, I love, I now take my wife and my daughter there. Dorchester is a great little town and uh, property values have increased. Thank you, COVID. Did you move around or, I mean, you mentioned that you moved in from a smaller house to a bigger house as the family expanded, but did you do any other moving or basically born and raised there until you went to university? Born and raised there. And then I was a townie um, going to University of Western Ontario. So I commuted in back and forth to go to university for my three, almost four years. And then I went to college in London as well. And part of the reason is that is both my parents were teachers So dollars were very hard to come by, and we had three kids all in different levels of secondary school. As doggy as that. Um, (laughs) Different levels of secondary school, um, like grad school, and there was no way two teachers could afford that. And I wasn't a good enough student to get any uh, scholarships. So we, we had to find other means of continuing my education. But no, I I didn't move around. I was in Dorchester for a very long time. My life wasn't filled with travel and adventures. The only time I would even come to Toronto was to go and see concerts. So Dorchester was small. It felt small. Um, and it's a very conservative town too. It's, it's built on hockey and baseball is at the core of the community. So if you're not into that, and I, was, I played baseball and I did a little bit of hockey. Mostly you're forced to play ringette in the 80s as a young woman. Um, but I didn't really fit into the mainstream because I, I was played sports, but I wasn't great. 
I was more into music and art and writing poetry, which kind of makes you fringe in a sports town. So let's delve into that a little bit more, because it seems like you were more of an academic and more into the arts. Music and poetry, were there any poets that you favored or you gravitated towards? Dorothy Parker. For some reason, I was obsessed with her morose, um, sort of sharp wit that she has in her poetry of responding to to people. Um, I I always had poetry books with me, and her famous poem, Resume, is something that I think I can't, I used to have it memorized. I don't have it memorized anymore, so please don't force me to recite it. But even some, even some of her plays were extraordinary. I also was into the romantics, like Lord Byron. Uh, I didn't know at that time that his daughter was the person who invented our, our, our basically the internet, Ada Lovelace. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting that I was always in that. And I was also into film and TV and pop culture. To this day, I, one of the hardest jobs I ever had to leave uh, to grow my career and do something else was leaving Shaw Media Chorus because I love TV, film, and pop culture so much. That was that was one of the hardest jobs, but always always in that space. I was always watching whatever was the latest and greatest and listening to the hottest music um, and even fringe music and always you know creating your own uh, epic playlists as well was my shtick. Okay, what you just said there about chorus it sounds comparable to my experiences when I was at CBC because you were working where the magic is made. Like you could walk into a studio very nonchalantly and just kind of stand in the background and see see the magic of television happening right in front of you. Did you find yourself doing that when you were at chorus? Yes. You you understood what the formula was of how to create culture. And then the other part that I think really helped me appreciate the opportunities of brand marketing is creating things that people actually want to watch in social media too. Like uh, one of my roles was editing down Saturday Night Live from from Saturday night. We would distribute like massive programs where you had to edit it down to help us on social media for Lyft the next day it takes a lot to determine what is the thing that's going to gain traction and what do I edit as this clip that I'm putting into Facebook so they continue to grow and connect with the audience. Um, Super fun. And then the real housewives, like you start to understand the rhythm of production and creativity when you're watching it in a different way um, to try to find the thing that is the one liner, right? Like um, Vanderpump, what's her one, what is Lisa's one liner for this episode? So much fun. So much fun. Looking at what you just said there about Saturday Night Live, I feel if I was doing that job, I'd have to ask myself this question. The clip that I want to use, is everyone going to find this funny or is this something that I just find funny? Because I'm that type of person. Like That's the way my humor works or my sense of humor. It's like I will roll on the floor laughing at something and everyone else will look at me and go, what's up with him? And then the reverse will happen. Everyone will be laughing and I'll be like, yeah, it was okay. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's a really hard thing in our industry to understand of do I find this funny or interesting or will others find this funny as funny as interesting as I do? And this is the element of the obsession with pop culture that always came in handy for me is not just understanding what I find interesting, but delving into why everybody else finds particular things interesting. Like just before this conversation, I was looking at some latest Kanye or Yee stories. I was looking at some, um, 
topics of discussion around the salad thing with Olivia Wilde. And to me, it's less of I'm reading gossip or pop culture or these things because I'm interested. I'm trying to understand what is it about this story that makes it interesting. I usually ask people what their influences are, and it seems to be pretty firm. It's usually someone they've worked with or it's a family member. But you've really, really, really got a list of influences here. You divvy them up into two groups, um, world influences and then life influences. So let's start with the world influences, because your first one is Madonna. You know, you can say whatever you will about Madonna and everybody has a strong opinion about it. But. If you look at longevity of a career, no other woman has had as many number ones. Nobody has had as much staying power in the decades that she's been around. She is a tremendous and smart businesswoman. She manages her own career and puts the right people around her that challenge her. And she's said that many times in interviews. So Madonna has always been that influence from music to art to culture. Phenomenal. The other ones that I put in, because this is probably where you're getting to is writers. Um, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, is one of my books that I recommend to anybody who says what what is the most important book that you've ever read. I also have Jonathan Hatt, who uh, talks about the happiness hypothesis. What is happiness? How do you achieve happiness? Not in a self-help kind of perspective, but more of Happiness is not something that is a constant. Happiness is something that ebbs and flows with you over life. And you need to truly understand that, yes, you could be the person who wins the lottery. And yes, you could be the person who bounces back from a traumatic injury. And you both could be on the same plateau of happiness over the course of time. It's, um, to me, it's a, it's a must read. And the other one is Michael Lewis. Um, and I love Michael Lewis's podcast, first and foremost, if you haven't read it, it's Against the Rules is great, and any business leader should read it as well. Um, his last book about the pandemic uh, really shaped me in one way of truly understanding of how we think about power dynamics in the workforce, who gets to lead, why do some people's opinions matter more than others, how do you actually allow people to thrive and be entrepreneurial but with guardrails, how do you let the best ideas come to the top? And putting it on the landscape of COVID is huge. And the other one that I put forward is a woman named Margaret Hardenbrock, who most people have no idea who she is, but she was one of the most amazing businesswomen um, in the 19th century. Hopefully I'm getting that right. Uh, she had a shipping industry. She was married the sort of patriarchy and misogyny of her time kept taking away business elements, but she plugged along. It was probably one of the most pioneering and successful businesswomen um, of her time, which is strange to say that we're talking about something that was only a couple of hundred years ago, but most people don't know her story. And I wish, uh, I wish somebody would make a movie about it in my life. My influences are my grandma. She lost uh, my grandfather when she had three girls, all teenagers. My mom was 16. She had to go back to work as a nurse and run a house of three women. I love her because she has very strong opinions, not necessarily things that I would agree with, um, not necessarily things that we would say are, um, you know, civil liberties friendly, but she took a stance and she had no qualms about it. So she really set 
you know, a, a, a tenor for my career and my life around that. And then my mom is a huge influence. She married a man that no one agreed with. No one thought that she should have married my dad. My dad was blue collar. He was a mechanic. Um, but my mom is the most generous person to a fault that I, that I know. And I do my very best to bring my generosity to the people around me as much as I possibly can. And my last influence right now is definitely my wife and my daughter. Um, my wife has definitely made me a better person. Um, you know, for a long time, for the 40 years of my life, I got to be on my own and do my own thing. And all of a sudden somebody comes in and, and sort of is the yin to your yang, right? So she definitely made me a better person and is influencing me in the, the here and now. But there you go. One thing I wanted to touch on about your grandmother, you mentioned that you, you disagreed with some of the social stances or her social stances or opinions, but seeing how she wouldn't back down from that, did that give you the strength to say, hey, here are my personal values and I'm not going to back down from that either? Yeah, it's especially the reason why I put lesbian business leader in my LinkedIn. Um, and it's important for me to to call out those things and stand for my beliefs, stand for my beliefs of how our industry has built um, and how we do things. We can challenge and there are better ways. And my favorite, for instance, of this is around new business. New business is one of those things where we're all told, oh, my God, it's hectic. Oh, my God, you know, you're going to be working weekends and doing other things, but we can reshape how we approach new business so that it's done thoughtfully and considered of everybody else's full-time job who's brought into it. So there's places where I definitely take a stance. I also am a huge advocate for local news and Canadian news. Um, I, I, I believe that your voice matters and what you do with it matters. And I, I get a lot of that. You could say stubbornness, but also drive from my grandma. No. Okay. That local news part, I, I want to touch on that a little bit because I'm on the sales side. I've been here for 15 years. And something that I've noticed in the last seven years is that more and more RFPs will come in. And it seems the sensitivities advertisers have around news is increasing. And I look at that and I shake my head and I go, no, like the news is what it is. We'd all like to have just nice calm days where there's peace and quiet. Nothing's happening in the world. But sometimes when something bad happens, it has to be covered that like we have to draw attention to it. And I feel like if advertisers keep moving their dollars away from things like that, because in my opinion, they're being oversensitive. How are we supposed to fund local news? How are we supposed to keep, you know, it might be easier in Canada to keep parliament in check, but like you said, with local news, what about those councils? that uh, those local city councils that aren't getting attention, that might be moving the goalposts in ways that aren't very progressive. How do we keep them in check if those advertising dollars aren't there to support the journalists that are going to be covering that? We could talk about this topic for days. Oh, but I know, I know. I just the, wanted to throw that out there. No, it's, um, you always have to look at the forces at play, much like anything in our industry, of what is shaping our mindset around a topic. Is it being shaped by fact or is it being shaped by really good business to business marketers in the space of context in news and in advertising around news? It's been shaped by really good B2B marketing of what you can and cannot do. There's not a survey that could that doesn't exist that hasn't been done to say um, advertising contextually next to news you know, changes the perceptions of your brands. I could also find you a survey that said it absolutely reinforces perceptions of your brands. It's how you phrase the question that has shaped some of our assumptions that we're making in the industry. 
but there was a great piece of research that we presented with Brian Cuddy from Cossette Media and, this, and CMDC when we did our local news from Magna that talks about, in actual fact, people want local news. They don't think badly of your brand by advertising around local news. Context doesn't hurt your ad, your brand. Um, and we need to delve into the counterpoints a lot more often and not take the shorthand of a research survey given to us by, you know, brand safety and verification platforms. There, there are other means of really having an objective opinion because we have to be very careful of the line we're starting to tread. Uh, 3,500 jobs, journalism jobs lost in Canada. We have more news deserts and ghosts newsrooms across our country than ever before. Canadians look to local TV as their most trusted news source. 30 of those have closed in the past couple of years because of COVID. Um, it, it's, it's not a place where we need to walk in and think that we have preconceived notions of what Canadians do and do not want from advertisers. It's now the time that we actually have to challenge our preconceptions and look at well, what's right for society. Well, it's important for my mom in Dorchester, Ontario, to continue to have the signpost that tells her about infrastructure and climate change and political issues and holds politicians to account. It's also important that they get advertising support. There's still a Ford dealership in Dorchester, Ontario. There, there's a cannabis store in Dorchester, Ontario. So there are businesses there, too, that need to thrive and grow. But there's also big business done there from telcos and others who should be advertising in these smaller community papers. If you, this is, this is my, this is my one stickling point. If you're a brand who says that you support Canadian communities through your CSR activities, your media supply chain and where you invest in the community also needs to extend to local news. The next time I get an RFP that says they want to avoid certain topics in the news or just avoid the news altogether, I'm going to send them what you just said. I'm going to send that clip and go, you need to listen to this and you need to know what you're doing. You're chipping away at the social fabric of society by not investing in news. And I, and I think we've lost the plot. Um, I think we, there's a lot of factors at play of how we got here. Um, was it easy to buy uh, locally? No. Did it take, has it taken time? to rebuild what is lost, yes. But there are great new independent news organizations popping up all across the country with new business models that are endeavoring to change this dynamic. And we need to support them. Um, I, I think that we need to just pay more attention to this and where our dollars are flowing because it's not enough money is staying within Canada. And if we keep sending our money out of country, then we will have no Canadian media left. And, and I don't take that statement lightly, I, I believe it because I can see the trend lines. I agree with you completely. And let's just say amen to that. We definitely, definitely need to look at that in a lot more detail. And we need to take that threat seriously because it is a threat to our democracy. Absolutely it is. So let's go back a little bit further though. Your very first job ever, you were washing windows at a senior's home and you're also babysitting. Is it safe to say that you started off as an entrepreneur? You know what? Upon reflection of the way that you frame it, yes, I was I was taking you know a bucket and soapy water going to seniors' homes in Dorchester, Ontario, and washing their windows for cash. I, I, I it was a quick way to get some coin, and then of course babysitting because that's a rite of passage for any 12, 13 year old girl. Did you just walk in and say, "Hey, 
Do you guys need your windows cleaned? We had someone put a posting up for it for, I guess you could say a freelancer to do it. Like, why did you choose to do that versus going into say retail, which is what most teenagers do? I liked doing it on my own. I liked manufacturing my own hours. Um, I did it via canvassing and then I developed a reputation around of being the person to call to get it done. Um, I actually, to this day, like washing windows. I do it for my mother-in-law at the cottage when we, when we open it up every season and I enjoy it greatly. I am a very introverted person. So whenever I can carve out the time to be able to work independently, um, and think about something on like, everybody has their different way. This just is indicative of how I wanted to work at the time. You already mentioned that you stayed local for university and you went to Western University in London, but what made you pick history as a major? I had a history teacher in high school named Mr. Ripa. Um, He has since passed away. He was an amazing teacher and he showed me that there were perspectives of history and that there was nothing that is 100% fact. He was the first person in my life that told me that history books are written predominantly by men, that women's stories are lost and that there is no one version of events. And how we take all of the events in our interpretation is how we actually tell the story of history. To me, the only fact you have is dates. What happened around those dates and why is open for interpretation. And you're trying to find an insight and derive something from human behavior. And what motivates people and how, how did this come to be? And what were the series of factors that created a conflagration um, around a particular issue. So history was, uh, was always my subject. And plus also I love writing and distilling a lot of information into a, a succinct insight, which made me a really good strategist in the end. Was there a specific period in history that you focused on? I covered R- Russian history. I did totalitarianism. Uh, I did a lot of European history, not so much Canadian and American history. The reason for that is I just wanted to go back to like as far as I could without all of a sudden being an anthropologist um, or an archaeologist um, into like human behavior and, and how how we exist. So um, those were the eras that I spent a lot of time uh, studying and they were always the fringe. Again, it wasn't the mainstream. I wasn't sitting in the classes where there were 250 students at Western. I was sitting in the classes where there was 25. And after graduation, you re-enrolled at Fanshawe College in their postgrad program in corporate communications and PR. Why did you choose to pivot into that versus pursuing something higher in uh, history? Wanted to be a journalist. My older brother Robert Thompson. He's a he's a golf writer. He used to write for the National Post. He was already doing that. He was uh, out of grad school and he was being very successful with this journalism school career. Uh, I didn't want to follow in his footsteps. And my other brother is in business. I had to pick, I felt like at the time I had to pick a new path. I had no idea what PR was. Um, I heard events. I heard social gatherings. I heard some writing. It was the beginning days of that. And I was like, sure, that sounds good. Um, I gave it a try. It wasn't that I knew anything about what I was about to embark on. Did you enjoy the program though? Cause it sounds like you were going into it a little bit, a little bit more blindly than you would have going into say your history degree. Cause you knew what to expect there. I did enjoy it quite a bit because the application of what I'm really good at of, of writing and distilling information and telling a story comes together in PR. Um, but I didn't realize that until you, you get under it because there's nobody to talk to you about that career. 
I, in the end, loved it, um, made a lot of friends, uh, and it was the start of getting me to Toronto. Going into PR satisfy your appetite for writing or just satisfy that bug you had for journalism as well? It scratched both those itches. Absolutely. Um, it, it allowed me to do the things that I loved the most. And what I always understood was like journalism was always a hard slog, but PR, there was there, you could get a salary in PR. So I was like, oh, <laughs> let's do that. I've heard of that before from other journalists that they pivot into that because the work is far more consistent. Yes, absolutely. And the, and the pay is more lucrative, which is ironic. So upon graduating from Fanshawe, you, I think you moved to Toronto at this point. You joined, was it National Public Relations? So your first job out of school. My brother was getting married. He sat me at a table next to a gentleman named Tom Watson who worked at National Public Relations. That was my interview. And then I went in and interviewed to become an administrative assistant at National Public Relations for the Technology Practice. It was run at the time by Lars Hansen. And I progressed my career through there as quickly as I possibly could getting out of an administrative role. And to this day, I will say I was the worst admin, but I did use it to take advantage of work that nobody else could do on clients. I'd be like raising my hand, taking advantage um, and forayed that into a bunch of promotions where Edward Gould, who at the time was a managing director, came into my office one day and said, like, you're about to be the youngest consultant in the history of the agency. I don't think that's held. I'm sure there's very smart and talented people since then. But at the time, I, I worked really hard. And it feels like even to this day that that first part of my life in Toronto was a blur, which I reflect upon every single time I meet somebody who's new in the industry, who's moved to Toronto from some other country or from a community in, in Canada. It is, it is tough and blurry and it still is to this day. Like I have memories, but they all just feel like speed, speeding through life was what I was doing when I was in PR. Well, the PR portion of your career, you're absolutely crushing it. I mean, you were at Accenture, Mansfield Communications, Punch Canada, Infinite yes. Media, like, like quite the repertoire right there. But correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like when you're either at the Women's Executive Network or you're at uh, at the Canadian Board Diversity Council, this mm -hmm. seems to be when you started to pivot a little bit into media. Like you still had your PR role, but now things like media, social media had started to move into your responsibilities. Would you say that this is where things started to turn a little bit? Yeah, it was turning quite a bit when I was at Accenture as well. Um, at the tail end of my career, the way that we were looking at business to business marketing and thought leadership and supporting some of their bigger um, new business endeavors. Uh, I would definitely say at the Women's Executive Network, I was taking the opportunity to build a brand. There was a rebranding effort that we did with Interbrand at that time. Um, we delved into media and we forged a partnership with Post Media, the National Post, and had the December issue of their magazine dedicated to female executives um, as part of the Women's Top 100. So we were. We were progressing in areas that today you would say are media and content marketing. Back then, it just felt like the right thing to be doing. Is there a specific moment or role you had in PR that you look back on and said, you know what, something I did here set me up for success in media or would set me up for success in media later on? Probably, I would say, like all of them had an element of it that really helped. But when I went to Chorus Entertainment and Shaw, 
it really helped me understand the language of media. I spent a lot of time with the research leads and the people who were tracking and having conversations about like ratings and viewership and why this and why not that and what we were doing with media partners and how we talked to them. Um, that really was my foray into it. And also that's when really big business conversations I was having with Facebook now Meta uh, were happening as well because we had a budget to boost content. And so I was spending a lot of time trying to master the Facebook algorithm because it wasn't a lot of money of how we would get maximum reach out of every piece of content that we had with the small budget that we were provided. I want to take it one step back because you, you were at Miriam before you were at at uh, Chorus Entertainment. So the one thing I've noticed is out of all of your titles, this is where you start to see some of, this is where things start to get a little bit broader because things were a lot more specific. You were a consultant in PR or you were on social media, but here you were the director of strategy. When someone says to you, you're going to direct strategy for this account, what does that entail? Because that seems pretty broad. It does seem pretty broad and it's a lot of driving into insights. There is also working with the user experience team shaping what customer experience would be. Miram would eventually become part of um, Wonderman Thompson. Um, I, were, I was hired in by a woman by the name of Carla Kongson, who's very well known in the industry. Um, she is energy. She has the best hand on client relationships. Um, and we had a, a strong and mighty strategy team there where we all complemented each other. I came from content and PR and thinking about the story and the storytelling sitting across from my desk was Min Ruick, who is now a, a SVP of performance who I actually hired when I was at Theo as a VP of strategy again. So her paths keep crossing. She was actually a client too. She came from media. She came from 360i um, now part of now part of Dentsu. So it, it, to me, it was less like I had all the skill set. It was that the team that we had together was so complimentary. Um, it was such like all of those people that I've worked with who I come across with, I come across all the time in the industry um, to this day uh, are, are all off doing amazing things. And to me, there was this moment in time at Miram where we had, which was Twist Image, um, where we had this group of people that was like um, lightning in a bottle, I would say. Mitch Joel was part of that, right? Mitch Joel was part of that. Um, there's quite a few people. Uh, Becca Lucas, who's now at Wonderman Thompson. Um, yeah, there's some amazing, talented individuals that have all gone on to amazing things. Um, Finkelstein, who he's off doing his own, like everybody has gone off to doing amazing things, but there was this moment where we were all together. That's the thing I love about the agency world in Toronto, though, is like every once in a while you just get the right ingredients together. And for a while it stays together and it feels like you're, you're gelling. I know that feeling. I mean, I've never worked agency side, but I've I've been sales my entire life, but there are a couple of moments in my career where you just have a sales team that wants to work with each other. They trust each other. They look out for each other. And even though everyone brings in varying degrees of money, everyone seems to hit budget and it just seems to have a wonderful productive atmosphere. So I can completely concur with what you're saying there. Yeah. And as a leader, that's what you want. So you have to, it's like holding the equilibrium in place for that to actually happen. And sometimes you can make a bad hire and bring somebody in and it just doesn't make it work. 
or a critical player on that team wants something more, but as a leader, you can't give it to them. So they go find it somewhere else and it, it goes away. It, it doesn't last forever. And when you have it, you got to enjoy it, but you also have to realize that it's fleeting. You spent most of your career in the agency world. I know we've been talking off and on about Chorus. What brought you to Chorus? Like what made you decide, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to leave the agency world and I'm going to go, we, I know we should call publisher side, vendor side. There's a lot of different terms for it, but I know that you already have a massive passion for pop culture and they're heavy in the Canadian production world. So what attracted you to it? Was it that? Was there something else? Davila Kelly, who still works there. She's an amazing leader and someone who, to this day, like I know I can count on and I, know, and I, I hope she knows that she can count on me because we connect every once in a while as a leader was is amazing. Um, the team there that was around PR, the ability though to build something from scratch. Social media, of course, at the time was everywhere and nowhere. It was everybody's responsibility and no one's accountability, which is to me a formula for uh, disaster. That's chaos in a bottle right there. <laughs> That's chaos in a bottle. And it, it was, how do you build something so that it's operationally excellent, that you can have revenue attached to it, that it's organized, that it's um, systematic, but also has analytics surrounding a creative field. To me, that was an amazing opportunity to look at what processes, how do you build it? What structure do you need to make it successful? And then what are the players and the team players that you need and the orientation and the attitude that they need to have show up to be successful? So that's, that's a chorus. Also, they had Vikings on air at the time. Um, <laughs> Outlander is still a piece of a show that they they have. They always had the content that I always wanted to watch too. Outlander is a Scottish show, right? Yeah, it's a Scottish show. And and uh, one of my parting gifts when I left Chorus Entertainment is Katrina Balfe, who's the star of the show. We were doing the junket, and I can't remember what season this was, but the PR team allowed me to do the interviews with her. And I will just say it's a lasting memory. You can find those online in places. You don't know it's me, but uh, yeah, there, I interview her and it was, it was a moment I'll never forget. And oh my God, she's beautiful. I have a soft spot for that show. I used to live in Scotland and my university, when I was over there, they actually used the building that I did my classes in for one of their later seasons when they were jumping back and forth between the sixties and I guess the mm. 1700s. So yep. Yep. yeah, if anyone's watching and they see the university of Inverness, it's not, it's actually the university of Sterling. So that's my claim to fame with that show. I totally get it. Totally get it. I did a trip around Scotland and I went to a few of the castles. So chasing, chasing outlander. Oh, I love that show. I've heard it's done wonders for tourism, especially the opening credits where it's basically drone footage of the highlands and the lowlands. You can grab a map and just go to all the places that they filmed. It, you you do that and you uh, then you jump over and you go do some Lord of the Rings um, work. Like you now can cover most of pop culture's major TV shows these days as a tourist travel destination, which I think is phenomenal. What enticed you to leave Chorus and move to Cassette, where you assume the role of VP of Strategy? Jay Cheney. So I interviewed with Jay. Um, I wanted to get more into creative agency. Uh, I think to Jay, I probably wasn't the norm. I think you probably would still say I'm not the norm of a, the perfect choice. 
for that kind of role, you might want to look at someone who has much more brand strategy background or has had like multiple awards as a director. I was not that person. I was, uh, I, I, I came from Chorus where I looked at process and people and outcomes and content and analytics, but there was something about that that intrigued him. And I went in and worked on CRM and brand strategy, and of course, creative campaigns. I worked on Canopy Growth um, as we were bringing it in, uh, worked on a lot of new business pitches. Uh, and I also was trying to get off the ground a bit of like consulting again of looking at how the work of marketing is done, which is always a theme in my career. I take not just what we do, but how we do it and how we can make more of the ingredients at the table really seriously. I want to touch on Canopy really quickly. What was it like working on a cannabis brand? Because I look at those brands and go, there's a lot of potential, but there's twice as many restrictions stopping you from getting probably the first idea you have off the ground. Uh, you know, there were so many amazing ideas that were bantied about that, of course, legal would shut down as you go because there's just no way. And you're having conversations about things like what kind of icon can we use and what can't we do? Um, how do you work with, you know, charitable organizations in a way that helps you with advertising? How do you educate people without educating people? It, it's a, It's got a lot of restrictions to it, which I think if you really wanted to, this is my opinion, really wanted to um, end the black market of cannabis in Canada and legitimately make it legal, there was so many restrictions for these brands, but so much imagination and creativity that's just laying laying on the ground of creative agencies and marketing, internal marketing teams across the country in their boardrooms. Like it's just like the amount of thinking that was put into this um, was amazing. So many great ideas, but for some reason, you know, it just felt magnified of how many ideas end up getting crushed in that process. But it does kind of desensitize you to falling in love with your ideas too much. Your move to Theo as the chief strategy officer. I think this is a really interesting role because Theo was, correct me if I'm wrong, an agency within an agency. It was still part of Group M, but it was dedicated 100% to Rogers. I had been the CSO of Mindshare for going on four years. I'd had several leadership changes above me. I was getting exhausted from spending 70%, 80% of my time on new business. Um, I wanted to get back into doing something where there was a tangible outcome. Um, I think we put a lot of our CSOs in the position of like, you're the, you're the pontificator for new business pitches and then you can never get off that. Um, and I definitely couldn't because I also ran new business for Mindshare at the time. And I was speaking with Joe Ordorino, who was then the head of Theo. I'd always been behind the scenes on the deal being arranged um, between Mindshare, Ogilvy, John Street, and Taxi that would stand up Theo. I was always there in the background. Um, but it wasn't until I talked with Joe that I started seeing the opportunity of maybe doing a CSO role where it would be both creative media, analytics, performance media, et cetera, pulled together. And again, it's about how do you get all of those ingredients to work together? How do you get them to support planning, to support creative strategy, to inspire our clients, to show them that we have you know, business acumen? And working on a client like Rogers, it 
a telco moves incredibly fast. You have a telco and a retailer all in one. It, it goes very quickly. Decisions are made really quickly. And so you have to know how something needs to flow through the agency to get it done in the most efficient way possible and what role everyone plays in that process. There's no, there's no give in that. And I think it took us some time to get our, our feet under us as Theo. But when we did, we did. It's like, it's again, it's all the right players, lightning in a bottle, um, and then we were done. <laughs> and to me, it's, uh, it was there, like I can feel it. And even to this day, I'm emotional about that loss. When you've got everything grouped together in-house, like you mentioned, everything from consumer experience right down to creative and media, does that make it easier? It does make it easier, um, but you need leadership and you need to find a way of talking to each other, right? It's been 20 years since we had fully integrated agencies on the scale of like J. Walter Thompson back in the day when it had everything under one roof. It's been a long time. And so there's generations of people who don't remember that, don't understand what that could be. Um, even to myself, that's outside of even my age group. So um, my mother-in-law worked in ad firms. Um, she worked at J. Walter Thompson and she talks about it. So it does take a lot of focus to getting people to come to a common objective and a goal and understand that there's no more P&L fighting and that there's one destination and we'll figure out how to work together and to allow people to voice up what does and does not work in the process was a huge component of the success of where we got Theo to in the end. Um, but that's the way things should run, to be perfectly honest. We just, we, we are overcomplicating things, I find. From there, you moved into your current role. You're mm -hmm. at Denso International, you're the president. And the question I like to ask people when they're in senior leadership roles is, how did you find the role or did the role find you? Because there aren't a lot of postings on LinkedIn for presidents. Uh, the role found me. Uh, somewhere within my network of people, uh, my name came up as someone to speak to. And I spoke with Stephen Kiley, who's the CEO of Dentsu in Canada. And I spoke with Carolyn Meacher, who's our chief people officer. There's just something about those conversations that gelled. Um, I don't know what it was for them <laughs> about me. Uh, maybe one day we'll be able to talk about that over a cocktail. But for me, it was the discussion around integration. The fact that we have all the ingredients here uh, that I know clients want um, and that there's tremendous opportunity for us in this market. And I'm excited. And they've been through a couple of years, really hard transformation of reducing nameplates and agency names, um, streamlining our agency operations. But we're there. and. This is the first place that I've seen where an OPCO executive team from creative, from media, from operations, from HR, um, from marketing, we all sit together and talk about the business. That to me is rare um, and un unseen in the hold coal space in Canada, at least to my understanding. One thing that's definitely rare about this position is you were starting as president in the middle of a pandemic. 
So let's talk a little bit about that. Like there's no office to really go into at this point. I imagine everyone's working remotely. Maybe you're starting to kind of eke your way into a hybrid workforce, but you can't really approach that job or at least your first day or your first week, the way you approached your other roles. Whereas you can sit down with the teams, meet and greet, say hello, make small talk. I mean, you can still make small talk, but now you have to put it in people's calendars. You can't just walk by their cubicle. Was there a unique challenge to becoming, not just becoming the president, but becoming the president of Dentsu during a pandemic? Yes and no. I mean, Theo was born in a pandemic as well. Um, ironically, it wasn't until uh, we were dismantling it that the executive of that agency actually got together for dinner for the first time in the same room. So it's given me a lot of tools in my toolkit of how to connect with people when they want to hear from somebody like me, how we bring people together. I brought the team together for with a facilitator for a day session to help us prepare for 2023 planning. Um, I'm very much about radical collaboration and bringing people into the process and not pontificating from a mountain. Everybody is accountable. Everybody plays a role. Um, it's not me dictating. It's what we think should be successful. So I have a lot of those lessons learned from Theo. Um, in in me, so I'm I'm bringing a lot of that to the role. The other is, is there's a lot of familiar faces here. Um, there's a few leaders here who I've come across before, so there's a bit of a, a shorthand, and it's just understanding the rhythm of the organization is different than other agencies I've worked at as well, and the and the role presents itself differently too, of course. When you started to move up in your career into senior leadership roles, you kind of become less of a player and more of a coach. Was that a difficult transition for you? Because I know at least on the sales side. A lot of people have trouble making the transition into management because they still want to get their hands dirty. They want to go on pitches. They want to tweak pitches, but they kind of forget that they still have to, that they don't do that anymore, that someone else is in charge and they kind of have to mentor and guide and step back. I've never stopped being a player. Um, having had a career where I've seen three recessions, I've seen people climb really high and very far away from the work. I still like to keep my game sharp. And there are certain things in the industry that I'm constantly learning and paying attention to. Um, that endless learning never goes away. But you're not wrong. It is, uh, it's much more of a pivot in my career to coach at a certain point. I find that having had two parents that were teachers, and you'll see how it comes full circle, makes me an actually a very good teacher. Um, how we inform each other how I teach, understanding the tone and the tenor of what you bring to the workforce. That's from my parents. Uh, so I actually have always loved teaching. And if I have any juice left after, you know, this stage of my career, going into teaching would be my, my next step for sure. I love teaching. Before we close and move to rapid fire questions, I wanted to talk about one other thing on your resume. Chicks that kick. You're the founder of this. So take us through what that initiative was and where the idea came from. I was doing a lot of Muay Thai training. I was, I've always loved kickboxing and Muay Thai. Um, I met a group of women, tremendous powerhouse women, who we all realized that when we were going to Muay Thai fights, there was no women on the fight guards. It's also around a time where we we're talking about like women and safety, physicality. Uh, and how we needed more women in the sport. So we decided that it would be amazing to put on an all-female 
bike card for charity once a year. And we did it for a couple of years and then we all went in our separate directions. Um, I still have hoodies, but here's a, here's a fun fact. Our, one of our major events, the MC of it was Ron Tite. Oh, nice. So anytime I see him, I always remind him of you were a hired gun at a, an all girls. <laughs> Sarah, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I guess I am. Yes. The campaign you're most proud of. Anything that we did with Rogers and my team at Theo and my team at Mindshare. I love all of those people. I love the client. Um, they're all tremendous and it was one hell of a ride. Your favorite movie. I have so many movies that I love, but tar, uh, I just saw it with Kate Blanchett and I'm still processing it. I haven't seen that one yet, but I'm going to take it in cause I am a fan of hers. Yeah. It's really about cancel culture, power dynamics, who you are at the core and what you love. Uh, it's so good. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Kate Blanchett. I mean, that's a no brainer, but I mean, we do not look at all alike, but I think she could pull, I think she could pull me off. My follow-up question. If Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would we call it? The quiet of sneakers. Any particular reason for that title? When I was in my twenties, I had to conform to wearing heels and things because it wasn't acceptable to show up as you were. And I feel like in my career, my career progression, I kind of snuck around and did a few things and I love a good pair of sneakers. Well, now they've got dress pants with drawstrings. So <laughs> we've done a complete overhaul. We didn't just top with the feet. We went through the whole wardrobe. Yeah, absolutely. Your favorite book. Uh, Invisible women. The, the stories about how in science and life and everything, women are invisible to how we came up with assumptions. And right now, anything that I'm currently reading is also the thing because it's always top of mind. And I'm reading a lot about psychological safety. Your favorite song? Anything by Brandi Carlisle. I've seen her 35 times live and right now free by Florence and the Machine. If you are driving and you're frustrated and you crank up that song, it is cathartic. Best advice you have ever received? I've received some very bad advice in my career, but the best piece of advice I ever had was from David Morelli, who's a longtime person in communications and PR. He was my client and he said, you produce great results, but I don't know anything about you. And his advice was that work is work, but relationships do matter. I would be a work dog behind the scenes and no one would know my name and I probably would have had a fine career, but I realized that it was to get out of my introvertness, I had to do some other things. So focusing on uh, accountability and everything has always been my core tenor as well. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Writing screenplays and, and books, um, although I probably still could do that and definitely teaching uh, in some sort of secondary school. Sarah, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Victor. It's a pleasure. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.